Hebrews the 11th chapter, this morning we come to verse 23. And as we read verse 23, I want to remind you of the obstacles that are against our faith. That things that work against demonstrating faith in our lives. Let's read verse 23 of Hebrews 11. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. This morning the topic is, by faith we parent. By faith we parent. This verse is about the parents of Moses. If you want to think about the obstacles that have been in the way of these different examples of faith, you recall to believe in creation, what is the obstacle to creation? It's evolution. What was the obstacle to Abel when he was trying to offer acceptable sacrifices? It was a murderous brother. What was the obstacle to Enoch when he was pleasing God? It was a dying culture. And what was the obstacle to Noah? It was a dead culture, completely died. What was the obstacle to Abraham? Well, it was, it was a, his family. They didn't want him to go. And it was also false worship. God called him out of that. By, and he went by faith. What was the obstacle for Sarah? It was a physically dead womb. She was incapable of bearing a child. And what was the obstacle when it came to those three that we looked at last week? Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It was death itself. They were facing death. So now... We come to, by faith we parent. What is the obstacle? I tell you, the obstacle is Egypt. It's Egypt. In in the Word of God, Egypt is always, without exception, a symbol of wickedness and darkness. And that is what the parents of Moses faced, was Egypt. And the laws and the culture of Egypt. Now I want to introduce you to some folks this morning that I'm ashamed to say that I have failed through years of study to really become acquainted with, but I'm going to tell you what, I have enjoyed becoming acquainted with them. And their names are Amram and Jochebed. Those are the parents of Moses. They have names. If you'll do a careful study in the Scripture, you'll find their names. They're listed in the Old Testament. Amram and Jochebed. They were both descendants of Levi. Remember, Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And they descended from Levi. They were both in that same tribe. It's very important that you understand that the lawgiver, Moses, came from the tribe of Levi, which were the ones that were charged eventually with distributing the law, teaching the law, handling the sacrifices, and so forth. But I want to introduce you this morning to the family of Amram and Jochebed. As I said, I have really enjoyed getting to know them. Amram and Jochebed, if you'll turn back over to the book of Exodus, where their names are not mentioned in the book of Exodus, but as I said, they're mentioned elsewhere. Amram and Jochebed were parenting in one of the most wicked cultures that has ever existed in all of time. And I want to give you a little bit of history of that culture. But first, let me tell you about their family. Amram and Jochebed... They were both of the tribe of Levi. And it says that they basically they had three children. First, they had Miriam, 
who was the older sister of Moses and Aaron. And then they had also had Aaron, which was the older brother of Moses. He was probably about three years older than Moses. Now, it's important because it doesn't appear that some of the trouble that was going on in Egypt came up. Some of the worst trouble, there was already a lot of trouble, but some of the worst trouble came up after Aaron was born and before Moses was born into the world. I want to give you that background so you can see a little bit about the culture that Amram and Jochebed were having to raise their children in. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, the culture was very, very much like the culture of Germany when Nazi Germany was in control. And you see from history what the the Germans, the hierarchy, the leaders did in completely ostracizing a group of society, a group in their society. And if you'll track these verses of scripture, they they absolutely track the process by which the Jews in the days of Hitler's reign were completely marginalized. So I want you to see this. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but it's very important to see what type of obstacles that Amram and Jochebed faced when they were raising their children in Egypt. Now, of course, you remember how they got to Egypt, right? Joseph, in the days of Joseph, Joseph made Egypt the most powerful nation in the world by God's providence and grace. And years go by, excuse me, before Joseph dies, the children of Israel come down into Egypt and they're going to be there for about 430 years. So this is what's going on during that 430 years after Joseph dies. You see, Joseph was a favored uh, leader in Egypt because he saved them from complete destruction in the famine by God directing him. So after Joseph dies, it says in Exodus 1 and 6, Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto the people, and here it begins, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Here we find an inward jealousy. There was an inward jealousy in the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, in which he basically despised the Israelites. And you'll see in verse 10, it says that the king said, come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. There was an outward marginalization. Y'all understand what it means to marginalize? It means to hold somebody in a category and just judge them because they're in that category. That's marginalization. And so the king, the Pharaoh, marginalized the people of Israel as a group, the Israelites. He set them apart in society and distinguished them from others. Come on, let us deal wisely with them. Now watch this. There was also an unfounded fear of the Israelites. It says, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they, also, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. <laughs> you see, that was an unfounded fear. The Israelites were no doubt some of the best sojourners, foreigners living in Egypt. But an unfounded fear continued to feed this marginalization. And then it says also, Watch the language here. It says, they fight against us and so get them up out of the land. You see, there was also a possessiveness there. I never noticed that before until I looked closely at the the reading. They were worried about them leaving. (laughs) 
And God's already foretold that they're going to leave in the Exodus. So they didn't want them to leave. They wanted to continue to marginalize them and abuse them and use them. And it gets worse. So therefore, it says, they did set over them, this is verse 11, taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. Now, if you look at the basic root word of what taskmaster means, we think of a guy standing there with a whip, and I know that happened eventually. But the root of taskmasters would be a tax master. They taxed the children of Israel. It began by them taxing them, an overreaching taxation. Y'all have heard of no taxation without representation? That's one of the reasons the United States of America is here. With the children of Israel, they were being taxed with no representation. And eventually it got worse. So not only was there inward jealousy and outward marginalization, there was an unfounded fear and an unnecessary oppression. They taxed them. You see, to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. You see, that's what they did for Egypt. They used them, they enslaved them, and eventually taxing led to enslaving them. So these people became slaves. And here's, here's the deal with that. There was an, this is what's called dehumanization and exploitation. Let me give you a couple examples of that. First of all, I've already mentioned to you, Nazi Germany. They dehumanized the Jews. They said they're not real people. Okay, this has also happened in years gone by where uh, the Africans in the slave trade, they were dehumanized. They said they're not real people. Look how that turned out. We're still being vexed today for the dehumanization of a segment of society. It's still around afflicting today. You see how that's such a scar that just carries centuries of ramifications. A, a segment of society was dehumanized. They're not really people. Even in the 1900s, as late as the 1900s, you would see where people like Margaret Sanger, who was the uh, founder of Planned Parenthood, in her very writings, it says that, that she dehumanized those that were mentally retarded, had mental afflictions, and also those that were of a different color. The very founder of Planned Parenthood supported the dehumanization of a segment of society. That is, that's just crazy, isn't it? That that, is, that entity is still around today. And guess what? There's another segment of society that has been completely dehumanized, like the Jews were dehumanized by Hitler, and like the Africans were dehumanized by the slave trade. And it's babies. <laughs> if you don't think I'm telling the truth, look it up, study it for yourself. That, that's not really a baby, so you can abort it. That's a dehumanization of a segment of society. See, that's what was going on in Egypt. They had dehumanized the Israelites. We'll make them worse. They have exploited them. You see? Now, verse 13 says, The Egyptians made the children of Israel to... Uh, excuse me, I missed one. Verse 12. It says, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. You see... Not only were they dehumanizing these folks, but they couldn't stand them. They couldn't stand them. And then in verse 13, it says, The Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. There was a polarization and an, an unfounded, an unreasonable hatred towards these people. And in verse 14, They made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. There were no doubt some geniuses among the children of Israel. Geniuses. And they made them do just menial type labor. Something that they, were, that they could have done so much more. Look what Joseph did for the nation of, of Egypt. 
And here they're making these people that are no doubt could uh, aspire to great heights and help the, the nation of Egypt. And they make them go out and just labor in the field, just like a common laborer. See, it's the polarization and unreasonable hatred towards a segment of society. Outright racism towards the Israelites. Verse 15, you say, well, it's bad. It gets worse. <laughs> and the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shiprah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the office of a midwife, when you deliver the babies for the, for the Israelite women, and you see upon the stools that there is a son, then you shall kill him. This is abortion. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. This is one of the only times that you'll read in ancient history where the boys were murdered as opposed to the girls. Usually it was putting the girls to death because they valued the boys more. But in this situation here, in this instance of infanticide, the child would be born and, they, and the king said to the midwives, kill the child. Now can y'all, what would they have to do to kill that, those children? They have to strangle them? That's terrible, isn't it? Have to cut their throat? I mean, right there in the presence of the mother and then say, oh, sorry, he died. He was dead. <laughs> I tell you, that is, that is horrendous, isn't it? That's the kind of society that they were living in. It was, it was a hidden conspiracy to murder and listen, good news, the midwives wouldn't do it. You can read, we're not here to talk about the midwives, but they have an incredible testimony of faith because they refused the king's commandment. They would not abort those children. Praise God. Praise God for women like that. And so the king calls them to the carpet and says, why have you not been doing what I told you to do? And the midwives say, oh, the, the women of Israel are more lively than the Egyptian women. They, they deliver the babies quicker. <laughs> and by the time we get there, it's too late. <laughs> So the king, in verse 22, charges all the people. An outright law. He charges all the people, not just the Israelites, but the Egyptians. Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Now this is one of those wink-wink laws <laughs> where he tells everybody, Egyptians and Israelites, he looks to the Egyptians and he says, every son, cast them in the river, <laughs> Keep the daughters alive. The Egyptians weren't doing this. See? This is an outright extermination and it's outright infanticide. You understand what this looks like? Either the mothers themselves were required to take their baby boys and go down to the Nile River, toss them in the river. Or it's believed historically that every three months that the soldiers of Egypt would go around and check the houses and... <laughs> And check to see if this baby was a boy or a girl. If it's a boy, they take it. Go throw it in the river. Can you imagine? You think times are bad now. That's one of the reasons that I want to put this culture before you. Yes, it's bad now. Yes, there's very similar tendencies and similar marginalizations going on today. By the way, if you want to know a group that's being marginalized today in the same way and ostracized and, and systematically set aside as a, and being dehumanized as a group of society... You need to only look to your right and to your left as Christians. That's what's going on. You know, in years gone by, Christianity, without exception, in years gone by, has held the high moral ground. You know, that a, a government might do this, a government might do that. But then there was that segment of Christianity that was kind of a high moral ground. You know, we, you know, we don't touch that. Not anymore. 
It's not that way anymore. Now, if you try to be a Christian, if you maintain that there is sin and righteousness and God hates sin and God loves righteousness, you're, you're, you're called some very ugly names. You're being marginalized as Christians. You need to know that. So it won't shake you one day and you think, what? There's a young man I know that was in school. And this young man was traveling to eat lunch with a young lady that he was working with in school who was also in school. And he said, hey, why don't we go to one of his favorite places? He said, why don't we go to Chick-fil-A? And the young lady who either came up in a Christian home and forgot everything about Christianity or never came up in a Christian home, she said, oh, no, we can't eat there. And the young man was like, why? Those folks are evil. They're Christians. That's the mindset. You young folks need to listen to it. Because that's the mindset that pervades and is growing systematically more and more. The marginalization of Christianity. Now, here we have an incredibly evil, conspiratorial, awful situation going on. where the, They are being put to death. Now, don't make no mistake. Baby boys are being put to death left and right. The children of Israel are slaves. You know, we have no clue what that means or what that looks like in terms of our free society that we've been enjoying for, that's been going on for a couple hundred plus years. But these folks are enslaved. They're now under the whip of the taskmaster and they're being forced to make these, these treasure cities and they're being forced to give up their boys. This is a way in which they are seeking to exterminate a segment of society that they have marginalized. Are y'all with me? <laughs> it's terrible. It's bleak, isn't it? And into this dark scene of slavery, infanticide, corruptness, and, and depraved culture, we read in chapter 2, There went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. In the midst of this dark scene, light arises. And I want you to notice how that light arises. And don't forget what I'm about to tell you. If you want to know where light is going to arise whenever people are being marginalized, whenever there's terrible things like this going on in society, I want you to know it's not going to arise from the halls of government. It's going to arise from the individual homes of families, of mothers and fathers, like Jochebed and Amram, leading and guiding their families in the midst of a perverse and crooked nation. <laughs> Isn't that great that it's that simple, brothers and sisters? Isn't it great to know that as, as much as your heart grieves over the things that you see that are going on, as mine does too, but isn't it good to know that you can make a difference? And the difference is made as mothers and fathers as they raise their children. You see? That's simple, isn't it? Or you say, Brother Tim, are you telling me that the fact that Jochebed and Amram hid Moses for three months and then do what they did what they I'm about to share with you. Are you telling me that that made the difference in a nation? Absolutely. That's what I'm telling you because Moses was the deliverer and he delivered a nation. You see, that's how God works. He takes the little babies. He takes the nothings in society and he turns it on its head. Isn't that great to know that you serve a God that is that powerful? And I want you to see too, it wasn't God just reached down and just plucked this little baby away and set him over here safely. No, 
the Lord used the instrumentality of godly mother and godly father. And if you're sitting here today, I should have said this at the beginning. Don't check out on me if you're not a mother or a father. <laughs> or if you're a grandparent or a, grand, that, that, a, a, a great-grandparent who, who's said, well, I'm not in that business anymore. You're always in the business of discipleship. <laughs> and one of these days, there's a lot of people sitting under the sound of my voice who will be mothers and fathers. And the culture, like in the days of the nation of Egypt, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. But there's hope. And that hope is found in the family. That hope is found in the Jacobeds and the Amrams of the world. You know, we like things to be black and white, don't we? You know, just make it clear. This is right. This is wrong. The problem with that is life is just not that way. There's a lot of gray area in life. You know, that's what drives the mind of a legalist in, in, in practically insane or to just beat their head against the wall. Because a legalist wants to see things just in black and white. It's this way or it's this way. But that's not the way life is. I've told you before, in practicing law for 20 plus years, there's never been a case that I tried that was the same as another case. You say, well, you tried, you tried this murder case and there was another murder case. Or you tried this assault case and there was another assault case. But none of them are the same. There's always a gray area. And whether you're mother, father, sister, brother, child, whatever you may be, you need wisdom for the gray areas of life. There's only one way that this boy, Moses, can possibly live. There's only one way. She's got to comply with the law. I tell you, I think this is a great statement on a lot of the things we're seeing going on today. The only way that this little baby is going to live is if that mother complies with the law. Now, as red-blooded Americans, we stomp our foot and say, I'm not doing it. And you have a right to do that. But that was not this society. They were slaves. They would be forcefully, they would be made, in, the law would be enforced. They would be made to do something that they didn't want to do. They had no choice. You see, life's not black and white. It's in the gray. And that's where we need wisdom. So, it's only one way this boy's living. Now, they hide him for three months. As long as they could keep him hid. I think that's one of the reasons for three months. I believe that's one of the reasons that we think that the that his history thinks that the soldiers were coming around about every three months to check and make sure there weren't any baby boys being left alive. That could be it. It could be some other reason. But she has shielded and hidden this baby for three months. He's a proper child. He's a, he's a beautiful baby. <laughs> a bouncing baby boy. And the only way he's going to live is if she complies with the law. So she did, technically. She technically complied with the law. Could you picture her? It says, when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. Let that soak in for just a minute. She is technically complying with the law. The law was you have to cast your child into the river. You understand that? You know, people go around saying, well, I'm a Christian. I don't have to comply with the law. This woman technically complied with the law. And in faith, she trusted in God to see through, see this child through what she was doing. I'm going to tell you, that's a, that's a hard decision. Listen to me. That's a gray area decision. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree with me? That was not a black and a white decision. It's this way or it's that way. It was a gray area. But by faith, she trusted in the God who could fill in the gaps. She had a lot of gaps. You know, I can just picture her on the morning that it finally was time for her to do what she did. I've been to Africa several times, and one of the mainstay pictures in my mind in Africa 
no matter where I've been, whether it was East Africa, West Africa, or Central Africa, is you'll see the women walking with these bundles of sticks on their head. They got them bundled up, and they got their kind of a turban on, and they're just walking. It's amazing. I mean, I tried at the time and thought I was going to break my neck. But these women are just walking along. They've got these bundles of sticks. How many women on the morning that Jochebed went out looking for her bundle of bulrushes? How many women did she pass that were holding the sticks on their head, going about their normal business? She goes down to the riverbank. And by the way, the bulrush was basically the papyrus or papyrus. That's what eventually paper, the first paper was made out of, which I think is interesting. It's a very durable and light piece of wood. Can y'all picture her going down to the river? What's on her mind? What's on her troubled heart? What she's thinking is she goes down there and she cuts those reeds. She cuts those papyrus, the bulrushes, and she stacks them up, takes them back to her house, carries them on her head probably. Can y'all picture her standing there as she's making this strange-looking little boat, if you will? In some places, the definition of ark is a coffin. Don't you know that in her mind, in the gray areas of her mind, she's thinking and she's crying and she's praying over this thing that she's making, stretching out those long reeds and tying them together with something on the end so that Moses could lay comfortably down in that basket, in that coffin. It's a gray area, isn't it? I'm going to tell you, Sister Tracy and I have said this before, my my own parents have said this before, parenting is not for the faint of heart. (laughs) I pray that none of you ever have to face what Jochebed and Amram faced. But we do face Egypt in other ways, don't we? (laughs) As parents. I hope maybe too, by what I'm describing here for you today, that every child in this room, whatever, young adult, whatever you may be, if you're living at home or if you've gone away from home, I hope that you'll understand a little about what goes through a parent's mind and how much they love you and how they, they, I trust, won't, especially the ones in this room that I know or maybe that are listening out on the radio, uh, that they want the best for you. Oh, I'm telling you, Jochebed wanted the best for Moses. You see, she already had Aaron and she already had Miriam. So sometime after Aaron was born, this infanticide law was passed. And she goes and she gathers her sticks And she comes back. Now, it doesn't say a whole lot about Amram, but I'm telling you, he wasn't resistant to it. They were were in one. They were on the same page about this. You can read that in Hebrews. The parents were on the same page. But Jochebed took it upon her to actually make the basket, the coffin. Y'all ever been to a funeral where a little fella had died, a little baby had died? I've told you before when uh, Brother Ben Winslet lost, he and Sister Rachel lost their twins. You know, he bought... Uh, two little jewel boxes, you know, about the size of a little cigar box, a little bit bigger. He put those those little jewels in that jewel box, buried them out there by Ebenezer. That's a sad little thing to see, isn't it? Can you imagine how sad that that coffin was that Jochebed was making? I bet she was shedding tears over that coffin. I bet some of the tears that she cried mixed into the mud that she caked the inside of the coffin with that she would let dry before she would lay baby Moses in it. She took probably some of the mud from the Nile River and it was very hard when it dries and it would be like a a substance that would keep it watertight. And not only that, it says that she put pitch on the outside. Pitch, we talked about that when we mentioned weeks ago about Noah who built the ark and he pitched it within and without. Pitch is just a substance that will prevent water from penetrating the actual 
little boat. And that's what Jochebed did. She pitched it with a substance that would help it to float. And she slimed it on the middle. She put slime in the middle. And it doesn't mean that it was all wet and nasty. It means she let it dry. And then it says that she put the child therein. It's a gray area of life, is it not? But I'm telling you, she did it in faith. And she technically complied with the law. I could just see her easing down there into the water. It says in the, uh, she put it in the flags or the reeds by the river's brink in the area where she knew that some royalty would be coming down at some point and it would not flow out into the main channel of the current. You know, we get, we've seen maybe in movies and cartoons where you see this little boat you know, floating down the current. No, she, she technically complied with the law so no soldier would kill or drown this child and she puts it in the water by the reeds. In the areas, no doubt, where at time to time that the royalty would come down and bathe. And it says that Miriam, his sister, stood afar off to see what would be done to him. Listen, God is amazing in His providence. God is the gap filler. As a parent myself, there's so many gaps in, in my life regarding parenting. That's a regular prayer that I pray on a daily basis. Lord, I'm a failure. And you come along and you see some of these parents that start that you look at and you think, oh man, they've just got it all together. They've got everything right. Everything's going to be perfect. I I can't really identify with those kind of parents because it's not about perfection. It's about asking God to fill in the gaps of your own life and your own failure so that you can impart and teach something to your children so that the, the slime pits of this world and of Egypt won't overcome them. Let's say a few things about the marks of godly parents. And let me make this disclaimer. Uh, I've only got one child that has left the house. I've got four more to go. So I can't stand here and say, well, everything I've done was the right way to do it. And everything that I'm doing now is the right way to do it. Uh, There's been things that we did when we started out with kids that I wouldn't do anymore. That was a little extreme. And then there's some things I look back and I think, I wish I'd done more of this and more of that. So I'm not sitting here telling you that I'm some expert. It is yet to it yet remains to see how my children will turn out. I pray to God and I say to them directly here today that I hope I haven't hindered them from turning out in the way God would want them to. And I issue that public apology because I know I'm a sinner and I need help just like any sinner needs help. And in spite of me, I hope that they turn out to be what honors God. I've only had one leave the house. So i got a disclaimer. So every, everything you're saying here, Brother Tim, is the gospel. Listen, I'm still in the midst of it just like some of you are. God help us. Amen? Marks of godly parents. I want to categorize it into about three or four things. First of all, the no-brainers. There are some no-brainers when it comes to godly parenting. Now listen to me now. I'm talking about godly parenting. You see, there, there, is, there are parents out of the world that aren't godly or maybe not children of God and They can raise up their children in a moral way, in a responsible way. I'm not addressing that. I'm talking about God's children (laughs) because I'm speaking to God's children. I'm talking about marks of godly parents. These are no-brainers. And I tried to compile this into something very short. Church, chores, clean your room, study the Word, and pray. You can say it like this too. Faith and family, school, sports, or activities, and everything else. These are no-brainers for for godly parents who are seeking to honor God. Church, going to church is a no-brainer. It's not something you have to think about or decide on. It's a no-brainer for a godly parent. Now, if a person's not interested in in godly parenting or whatever, that's a different subject. I'm talking about somebody that's interested in honoring God. 
Church is a no-brainer. It's an automatic. It's just an automatic. Chores in a household are automatic. I know you kids are like, oh, we hate Brother Tim now. (laughs) Please don't hate me. Please don't hate me. Please don't dislike me. I want you to like me. But i got to tell you this. Chores are a no-brainer. Cleaning your room is a no-brainer. Studying the Word of God is a no-brainer. The Word of God, God's Spirit and the Word of God is the reason I stand before you speaking here today. God has saved me in a timely sense through the Word of God and the preaching of the Gospel. Studying the Word and praying, those are no-brainers. Now, let me refer to what I call the fine-tuning. <laughs> That's the old, you, you can say it like this, you know, the devil's in the details. <laughs> Or we want to say Christ is in the details. That would be a better way to say it. But here goes the fine-tuning. You know, those are no-brainers. Church, chores, clean your room, study the Word, and pray. Then you've got different personalities of different children. I've told you all this before. There's uh, at least one of my children that uh, responded only to really intense and heavy uh, rod work. I didn't say yard work. I said rod work. (laughs) Y'all figure that one out later. A lot of spankings. (laughs) And then there's another one of my children that I can just do this to, you know. And man, they just lose it. Now, I get it. They may be faking it so that they don't get the, the, the paddle or whatever. I get it. I'm, I wasn't born yesterday. <laughs> but different children are different personalities, right? What works for one may not work for the other. This is where you lose the sleep, parents. This is where the gray area comes. Those others are no-brainers. But this fine-tuning area, it requires a lot of work. <laughs> and no two children are alike. Now, I will say this. It's good to know, at least speaking from my standpoint, not Sister Tracy's, but I can see the characteristics of me in, in, in my children, and so I know exactly what they need in those areas because I know what has worked with me. <laughs> see? And I'm not talking about the good parts. I'm talking about the sinful parts. And then there are those unexpected variables that come in and affect the no-brainers, that come in and affect the fine-tuning. I'm just going to name a few of them. Because there's more today, I believe, than there were 100 years ago. There's media, video games, phones, sports, activities. There's so many variables, unexpected variables that you think, I've got this path, it's going to be fine, everything's going to work out, and then here come these variables. Boyfriends, girlfriends. (laughs) There's all these variables. I tell you, it'll make you want to pull your hair out. Right, parents? Amen? (laughs) Man, I thought every parent in the room, but y'all love your children too much. I get it. You're You're not going to go that far. I'll go that far. Amen. (laughs) Here's the key. You got your no-brainers. You got the fine-tuning. You've got all these unexpected variables that come in. Jochebed and Amram had these two, right? That's a pretty unexpected variable when they say, you must throw your baby boy into the river. I don't think we face any variables like that. Not physically, at least. Here's the key. Proverbs 23 says, my son, give me your heart. (laughs) That's tricky, isn't it? So much of Egypt will take away a child's heart. You know, in in the old days, the phrase was wine, women, and song. And and we're not just knocking on the girls. You know, wine, men, and song. And the way that's said today in modern terms is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. (laughs) So many things will take away the heart of a child. You see, it's not easy fighting against Egypt as a modern-day parent. But I want you to look at the example of Jochebed and Amram. Parents, and just keep on keeping on. 
and children who will be parents one day, I want you to see the example of Jochebed and Amram and just set that as your north star, as your goal. The no-brainers, the fine-tuning, the extra things that come at you. Now, very quickly, the marks of ungodly parents are, are do nothing. You know, that obviously, the, the Word of God says a child left to himself brings his mother to shame. There's so many children bringing their parents to shame, shame because they've been left to themselves. That can be in the form of putting somebody in timeout and not directly addressing the issue. I'm not saying there's not a place for timeout. But there, that can be in the form of just saying, go to your room, leave me alone. I'm too busy and tired to deal with this. <laughs> I've wanted to say that many times. Just doing nothing. Leaving the child... Listen, that can be all the little fella ever does is this right here, you know. Just sit him in front of an iPad. Sit her in front of an iPad. That becomes the babysitter. Sitting him in front of, God help us, Barney. Back in the days. No, you guys might not even know. Some of the young guys might not even know what that is. Praise God if you don't. Just sitting him in front of a babysitter and not spending that time with them. Dads, listen to me. This... This affects me every day because I have to work. I have to go out and make a living. I have to do the things that I do. And every second that I'm away, I register that in my mind as that is a second that I'm not able to spend with those children and the clock is ticking, ticking, ticking. <laughs> One of them's already gone. That vexes me every day. And you say, well, does that mean you never can go out and go work? No, it doesn't mean that, but it means that needs to register that the time is limited and Egypt is calling. There's the do-nothing mentality. Child just left to themselves. And then there's the too-many-rules mentality. <laughs> We've all been guilty of that, have we not? Every child in this room is probably going to amen what I'm about to share from Ephesians 6. <laughs> Ephesians 6, I did, I, this slapped me in the face. It hit me like a ton of bricks. It's one of those times I've told you before, the, the hands of the Lord just come out of the Bible and start slapping you. <laughs> it was one of those times. The basic definition in Ephesians 6 and 4 where it says fathers, and that includes mothers, fathers, families, parents. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. My kids have heard this, and they're probably already snickering. The basic definition of provoke is to exasperate. He's saying, parents, do not exasperate your children. Don't worry them to death. Don't irritate your children. That slaps me in the face. Because I think I've been probably the most major irritation to my children. You know, have you done your chores? Have you done your chores? Have you done this? Have you done that? Have you done this? Have you done... Why haven't you done that? Why you... <laughs> you know, I understand we've got to find that balance there somewhere, somehow. It's there. But we can go over the line and irritate our children. Now, where are the amens from the children? I'm taking up for them. Parents, don't irritate your children. You can irritate them with too many rules. And I, you say, well, what are the rules, Brother Tim? Well, I tried to give three or four basic things there, and then there's the fine-tuning of all of that. I can't sit here and tell you. Well, your rules for your little fella, your little sinner that has a specific personality may be a little different than the rules that I have for this little sinner who has a different personality. See, I tell you, that's a gray area. We need wisdom, don't we? <laughs> Parenting is not for the faint of heart. But too many rules will exasperate, irritate a child, and it will provoke them to anger. Give me your heart, the Scripture says. Oh, I believe that Amram and Jochebed had the heart of God whenever they did what they did. You see, parents, children, <laughs> Egypt is calling. 
Egypt is still out there today. Egypt wants your children. You see, fill in the blank. You say, where's Egypt in my life? It's everywhere. The media of Egypt wants your children. The video games of Egypt want your children. The activities of Egypt want your children. Uh, Egypt's Hollywood wants your children. There's so many things that the, the, the wicked girl or the wicked boy of Egypt wants your children. All of these things, it'll just make you pull your hair out. There's so much coming at you. There's so much to face. But you know what the Lord said? The Lord said, out of Egypt have I called my son. Did you know the son of God himself for his several of his tender years as he was a baby? God sent his son down into Egypt to avoid the infanticide of King Herod when King Herod had all the baby boys put to death. You see, this isn't the first time that a culture has committed. The United States of America is not the first culture that's ever committed infanticide. And what did God do? God sheltered his son, his, the son of God, down in Egypt for a few years until he brings him back into the promised land. Let me tell you something, parents. You're in Egypt This whole world is Egypt. And Egypt wants your children. It wants to devour your children. But what you need to do is like Jochebed, build your ark. Build your little... It may look like a coffin. As a matter of fact, the world will say, you're you're crippling that child by sharing those verses with him or her. You're destroying that child. You know, he's going to be totally warped by what you're teaching that child. That's what the world says. You see, Jochebed, she filled the inside of where that child was going to lay with, with slime, with mud, and it dried and it hardened. And that's what Egypt of the world, that's what the world sees whenever you are filling your child with prayer and with the Word of God and with consistent godliness and demonstrating that before them and saying this is right and this is wrong. You know, abortion is a sin. Homosexuality is a sin. Uh, unrighteousness of the world, it's a sin. All these different things. Adultery is a sin. Fornication is a sin. Lying is a sin. They'll say, you're warping that child. They look at that as slime, you see. But I'm going to tell you, that's the preservative. That's preservative for that child. I hope that we're building our ark. It says that Jochebed took an ark for and built an ark of papyrus or bulrushes for baby Moses. It says that she pitched it on the outside to help it float. Parents, we must build that ark and we must pitch it so that they can, the children can float through the rivers of Egypt in this world. And we must put what the world looks at as slime... <laughs> But I'm going to tell you, it's not slime. It is the preservative and it's gold and silver and precious stones for those little children to enjoy and rejoice in as they grow and get older and as they go along the way. It's not slime. It's a preservative. And I tell you, they will encounter the royalty, the true royalty of this world. If you pitch it and you coat the inside as Jochebed did in a physical way, I'm telling you, they will encounter the royalty of this world. They'll encounter not just the princess of Egypt. They'll encounter the king of kings and the lord of lords. And the flags by the river. If you do that, parents, it will come. My grandmother used to say, when the children are small, they step on your toes. But when they get older, they step on your heart. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? 
I pray that every parent under the sound of my voice, every grandparent, every great-grandparent, every child, I pray that by being introduced to parents such as Jochebed and Amram, who stood in the face of a wicked, evil, enslaving culture, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. They were not afraid of the culture that they faced. It all came down to their home and what they did inside their home. And even when they were affected to be chased out of their home and had to go put that little baby in the river, God still provided. Isn't that great? As a matter of fact, Miriam stood by, saw the princess of Egypt, asked the baby to be removed from the water because it was crying. She said, this is one of the Hebrew children. And Miriam runs up and says, you want me to call a nurse? (laughs) And who who does she go and call? The princess says, yes, go call a nurse. This is a three-month-old baby. Who do they call? In God's mysterious providence, they call Jochebed. And wouldn't it be great, mothers, this is the dream of all mothers, to get paid for taking care of that baby. That's the dream of all mothers. You can't put a price on it, men. You can't put a price on what these mothers do. But wouldn't it be amazing if you could get a salary for raising that baby? Oh, how many mothers would stay at home if they could? (laughs) And Jochebed was paid She was paid for raising her own baby. Now that, I believe, drew a chuckle and a laugh from God in heaven. He goes, I'll show them. They're going to toss my baby deliverer, future deliverer in the river. I'll make Egypt pay for that baby. (laughs) That's beautiful, isn't it? I'll leave you with these lines. And I believe this will be the sentiment of every mother and father. Those lives were mine to love and cherish. To guard and guide along life's way. Oh, God forbid that one should perish. That one, alas, should go astray. Back in the years, with all together, around the place we'd romp and play. So lonely now, I oft times wonder, oh, will they come back home someday? I'm lonesome for my precious children. They live so far away. Oh, may they hear my calling, calling, and come back home someday. I gave my all for my dear children. Their problems still with love I share. I'd brave life's storm, defy the tempest to bring them home from anywhere. I lived my life, my love I gave them to guide them through this world of strife. I know one day we'll live together. And that great glad hereafter life. I'm lonesome for my precious children. They live so far away. Oh, may they hear my calling, calling, and come back home someday. I want every child in this church to know that I love them. I love every one of you. I want my children to know that I love them. And I'm very sorry for my failures. And I pray every day that God would fill in the gaps that I leave so open. And I feel so incapable. And I believe and trust by faith. And seeing the example of Jochebed and Amram, I believe that he will. And that my children and your children will be delivered out of Egypt. The best thing that you can do, whether you're child, parent, grandparent, or whatever your situation may be, your best thing that you can do is to get in the ark, the church of God. Follow the Lord in baptism. Travel along that glorious journey as you float down the rivers of Egypt 
rejoicing at the gold and the silver and the precious stone that has lined your little ark as you go along and rejoice in the blessings of God and His church.